Do you know how to tell when you're old? You might answer that question this way. I hurt when I wake up. Or somehow I sprained my ankle when I was asleep. Somehow I woke up injured. I went to bed fine and I woke up and I sprained my ankle. That's legit, and that's one way to answer that question. You know you're old when you wake up with an injury, an injury you didn't have when you went to bed. But here's how you can tell you are really old, when you don't understand your teenagers anymore, when you don't understand their language. That's when you know you're old, when they say things to you and you have no idea what they mean. For instance, if you say, want to go to Starbucks? And they reply, bet. Bet? B-E-T? Bet? What is bet? How about a yes or no? Here are a few examples of just how old some of you are. How old some of us are. Parents, take notes. The, The aforementioned example, bet. It's a response indicating agreement. Example, want to go to the store? Bet. Here's a favorite of mine, bruh, or bro. It can be used to address anybody. I've been on the receiving end of this numerous times. I was on the receiving end of this in a text last week from one of my kids. Somehow I went from da to dada to daddy to dad to bruh. Confession, I did this to my parents, whom I called dude, so fair play. Cap'n means lying, or you might say no cap, no lie, or dead, D-E-D. Used when something is really funny or embarrassing. Example, OMG, that meme has me dead. Listen, if I have to explain what a meme is, you are old. (laughs) One more, mid. It's an insult meaning low quality or average. It derives from mid-tier, meaning not awful, but not great. Example, the new Jurassic Park was mid. Hopefully today's sermon is not mid. Well, those are just a few words that can let you know if you are old. Okay, Boomer? That's another one. All of this is proof that language shapes culture. Language, the words we use, shape culture. Language shapes culture at schools, at workplaces, social media, and even churches. And that's why we must be gospel-fluent people. We must be fluent in the gospel if we are to create a true gospel community here at Grace. If we want a church culture of gospel plus safety plus time then we have to know that we create that culture with language, with words. Ray Ortland said, this is what our churches must be. Gentle environments of gospel plus safety plus time. It's where we're finally free to grow. And that's what we're aiming for here at Grace. A gentle environment. Is that, how you would just, is that what you think of when you think of church? A gentle environment? Most people don't. A gentle environment of gospel plus safety plus time. Gospel, where you hear the good news all the time. Safety, where you're safe. You're free to confess your struggles and your sins. And then time. You're allowed time to grow and mature. You're not expected to mature as a Christian overnight. You're allowed time to grow, to flourish. And that means 
that you can never hear too much good news. You can never hear too much gospel. You can never hear too much about Jesus. You can never too much hear too much about Jesus and what he has done for you. So, when the gospel, which is good news for bad people, when it is the main focus of a church, it creates the gospel culture that that church desperately needs. It creates an environment of freedom. When the gospel is the main thing of all of our ministries, it helps create this kind of culture where Jesus is worshipped and adored like we were just doing, where sins are confessed, where we don't have to hide anything, where relationships are reconciled, where money is no longer king, where the races come together in unity, and where laughter and dancing is normal. Listen, laughter is a sign of a healthy church, and we do a lot of that around here. Staff meetings are full of laughter. Deacon meetings are full of laughter. Your elders meet, and we laugh a lot. And I assume a lot of your Sunday school classes and small groups do as well. I know they laugh at Awana a lot. Laughter is a sign of a healthy church. And it's in this kind of gospel environment, this culture, where people start to feel free and safe enough to admit their real problems. They don't feel pressured to grow at some predetermined pace because the sovereignty of the Holy Spirit is trusted. They are banking on the Spirit of God to do what He does best. And openness is normal. Transparency is normal. Forgiveness is normal. Laughter is normal. That's what we're aiming for here at Grace. We want Grace to be a safe place for disciples who feel like failures. Do you ever feel like a failure as a disciple? Your pastor does. I don't know how that lands on you or not. (laughs) You may think, well, you need to be fired. I feel like a failure as a disciple sometimes. I'm going to assume that you do too. This is a safe place for disciples who feel like failures. We want to be the place you come when you've failed. If you totally made a mess of your life, we want you here on Sunday morning. This is the place you should come. When you've totally made a mess of your life. I hope you feel safe to confess your sins here. To confess your struggles. To confess your marriage problems. Listen, every marriage has problems. Every marriage is tough. Every married person in this room struggles to love the person sitting next to them. Okay, can we just get that out there? So everybody knows your marriage is hard and so is that one and that one and that one and that one. It takes work, doesn't it? You are free to confess that to someone and say, would you pray for me because I'm struggling. You can confess here how you are afraid to share the gospel with an unbeliever when you had the opportunity. You're free here to confess how raising children is hard. Listen, your global outreach team met on Wednesday night and we do a little prayer time. How's everybody doing? What's your prayer request? And all the parents said, parenting, please pray for parenting. I need help. I need grace. Parenting is hard. Not to mention, you got to figure out what kind of language they're using. Listen, parents, you're not the only one struggling. Every parent is struggling. We want grace to be a place where you can confess that. You can confess how you struggle with fear and anxiety and depression and pride and lust and worry, all of those things. And we want you to feel safe enough here to confess them and then find welcoming arms where people will pray for you and encourage you. Tell me, who wouldn't thrive in a church like that? Who wouldn't thrive 
in a place that's that free. We want this church to be a safe place where you can come in on Sunday, all beat up and warm out, messy hair, don't care, and say, tell me the gospel story again because I blew it this week and I need to hear it again. Tell me about Jesus one more time. A place, a church where we encourage each other with this good news, where we feel, feel safe to share our struggles and concerns. A place, a church, a family that is not afraid to be real with one another. And we do that with language, with words, ultimately the words of Scripture. And we do it by being gospel fluent. In his book, Gospel Fluency, Jeff Vanderstelt says, to become fluent in a new language, you must immerse yourself in it and commit to practicing it over and over again. Becoming fluent in the gospel happens the same way. Gospel fluent people think, feel, and perceive everything in light of what has been accomplished in the person and work of Jesus Christ. Language shapes culture. It shapes a church culture. And the Apostle Paul knew this. It's why he's writing to the Colossian church. He wants them to know that the gospel they heard and believed is all that they need. Paul wants them to be fluent in this gospel. So he packs this letter full of all the benefits of the gospel that come for those, from Jesus Christ to those who are in Christ. He wants them to be a gospel community. As he says in Colossians 3, let me read this for you. He says, put on then as God's chosen ones, holy and beloved, compassionate hearts, kindness, humility, meekness, and patience, bearing with one another. And if one has a complaint against another, forgiving each other, as the Lord has forgiven you, so you also must forgive. And above all these, put on love, which binds them together in perfect harmony. That's gospel community. Tell me, who wouldn't thrive in that kind of environment? The only way the Colossian church can do these things that Paul is asking them to do, the only way they're able to be these things and become fluent is by becoming fluent in the gospel. And it's the only way we will. We want to be a gospel community here at Grace. And I think by God's grace, we are. But we don't want to slack off, do we? God's Spirit has been working in our hearts. You, you sense that. New people come in and they tell me, I sense the Spirit of God here. I sense love here. There's something about this place. The Spirit is working because we're speaking good news to one another. It means we can text each other good news, DM each other, call each other, care for one another, forgive one another. All that Colossians 3 kind of stuff, that's what we want for grace. And I think it's here, but let's keep going. Okay, Colossians chapter 1, beginning in verse 3. Hear the word of the Lord. We always thank God, the Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, when we pray for you, since we heard of your faith in Christ Jesus and of the love that you have for all the saints. So Paul begins his letter by giving thanks to God because the gospel had taken root in the city of Colossae. These people are now in Christ. They are saints. They have been adopted into the family of God. And so Paul gives thanks and he prays for them. And one reason Paul gives thanks is because Paul knew how hard and how countercultural it is to be a Christian. So he's giving thanks for them and he's praying for them. 
There is a gospel witness in Colossae. Don't overlook that. When you read letters in the New Testament addressed to churches, it means that the Spirit of God came and regenerated a bunch of dead sinners who were blind and dead in their sin, and he made them alive in Christ. When you read New Testament letters written to churches in cities, it's a reminder that the gospel really is the power of God unto salvation. These opening verses of Colossians are a reminder that you cannot stop the gospel at all. It's power. As noted theologian M.C. Hammer said, you can't touch this. You can't touch the gospel. You can't stop it from moving forward. No matter what kind of legislation is passed. Listen, the message of the cross is the most powerful thing in this world. And you carry that message as a disciple of Jesus on your lips. You can share it whenever you want. And God can awaken spiritually dead people. Think about that. How cool is that? You have the most powerful message on your lips. Don't ever get over that. Don't ever forget that the gospel is power, the power of God unto salvation. You simply share it, and God uses that to awaken dead people and unite them to Christ. That's it. Simply tell people, Jesus loves you. He lived and died for you. He rose again. He's coming again to judge the world. Will you believe? Boom. People are made alive. That's pretty easy, isn't it? We can all do that, can't we? Now, in verses 9 through 14, we'll see next week in detail what Paul was praying for the Colossians. But we now know why he prays what he prays. Paul prays for this little church because it is countercultural to be a Christian. Paul prays for the Colossians because he knew the hatred they would face as they shared the gospel and as they lived for God's glory as a church in the city of Colossae. Now, stop and think about how countercultural the church is. Think about how countercultural our church is. We're in California. We're not in the Bible Belt. You tell people in the Bible Belt that Jesus loves them and they're pagan, they'll say, I know that. That's pretty cool. That's not the case here in California, is it? Think how countercultural we are as a church in California. But think how, how countercultural the church is as God's people. We value human life, we are against abortion. We value marriage as a God given gift between one man and one woman, and that's it. I'm sorry, that's it. One man, one woman. We value that. That's countercultural. We believe human beings are made in God's image as male and female. And whatever gender you are, when you are born, is your gender. So we hold to many countercultural beliefs as the church. We believe things that may get you canceled. We believe things that might get you fired. We believe things that might land you in jail one day. So let me ask you, when's the last time you thank God that Grace Baptist Church is here in Santa Maria, California? Because this section of California is dark. The ground is hard for the gospel. I've shared these statistics many times before because I want to keep them in your mind. According to the Barna Group, the Central Coast is ranked number two, number two in the U.S. on the never churched list. A list of cities where the highest number of people are that have never, ever been to church. 
in all the cities of the U.S., the Central Coast is number two. We have West Palm Beach, Florida, Pierce, Florida, 17%. And then there we are, Santa Barbara, Santa Maria, San Luis, 16%. 16% of the people who live on the Central Coast have never been to church once. Let that sink in. It's roughly 115,000 people or so. That's sobering. The Central Coast is a mission field. In all of America, we are the number two city or region here that is full of people who have never been to church once in their life. Here's another sobering truth. We're also ranked number nine on the top post-Christian cities in America. So there are eight spots up in the northeast, there's one in the northwest, and then there's us on the central coast. So 54% of our population is post-Christian. It means that they don't have a biblical worldview. They don't know anything about the Bible. They've never been in church. They don't know who Adam and Eve are. If you bring up Adam and Eve, they're like, who is that? Who are they? Do they have a reality show or something? What, who are they? They think Jesus is a cuss word. They're lost and they're blind. They can't see God's glory. They don't even know God's glory exists. And Jesus put you here so you could tell them the good news that God loves sinners. Jesus placed you here as a missionary on this mission field. That means that God has sovereignly placed you in your specific neighborhood, in your specific workplace, so that you can share Jesus with these people. The baristas at your Starbucks have been placed there so you can tell them about Jesus. They think they're there to get a paycheck and free coffee. They're there so that you can build a relationship with them and tell them about Jesus. Your cashier at the grocery store is there so that you can tell them about Jesus. Your coworker, your neighbor, fellow students... God has placed you where you are to reach the people where you are. Not where the church is, not where the pastor is. God has placed each one of us where we are so that we can reach the people where we are. And the devil does not want you to do anything about these statistics at all. In fact, the devil hates everyone in this city. Think about that. Satan hates every single person in this city. He hates your neighbors, he hates your coworkers, and he hates you, and he wants to dull you to these statistics so that you don't do anything about it. Why? Because the devil knows that the gospel is the power of God unto salvation. The question is, do we? Do we believe that? You know, we might be surprised at what happens when we share the gospel with people. I mean, people are blind, uh, they're dead in sin, but you never know what they may be thinking about. You may share Jesus with someone and they might reply, I always knew there must be a God out there like the one you described. Or they might say, I don't believe that the things you, are, you described are true or that the merciful, kind God that you described is real. I don't believe that. But then you can say to them, but don't you wish that you did? Don't you wish you did believe in a merciful, kind God who forgives sinners? This is the message we want to take to our city, to share the good news of the merciful, kind Jesus of the Bible who's offering amnesty to everyone if they would turn and trust in him. And then when you share the gospel, you might hear things like this too. I don't want to go to church because the church is full of hypocrites. I've told you this before, what to say when they tell you 
that the church is full of hypocrites, you tell them, no, it's not full of hypocrites. There's actually room for more you want to join. And so Paul prays for the Colossians, but he gives thanks because the gospel came to town. Epaphras planted this church in Colossae, and the gospel started spreading, and Paul heard about all the Holy Spirit was doing in this little church plant. And he tells us in verse 3 what he heard. Look at verse 3 again. We always thank God, the Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, when we pray for you, since we heard of your faith in Christ Jesus and of the love that you have for all the saints because of the hope laid up for you in heaven. Of this, of this hope, you have heard before in the word of truth, the gospel which has come to you, as indeed in the whole world it is bearing fruit and increasing, as it also does among you since the day you heard it and understood the grace of God in truth. So Paul says, I heard of your faith and I heard of your love. These two are linked in discipleship. The vertical faith in Christ leads to horizontal love for others. This is what the gospel does in the heart of a disciple, in the heart of a believer. Faith in Jesus leads us to love other people. You see, there's just something about seeing Jesus and what he has done for you and your sin that increases your faith and your trust in him that then causes you to go and love other people. So if your faith is weak, what do you have to do? You have to look at Jesus. If you struggle to love someone, what do you have to do? You have to look at Jesus and you will see someone who loves you at your worst. And that will enable you and empower you to go love someone else. You stare at Jesus until you believe and trust and until you love. So discipleship is simply, that's what Paul's saying, discipleship is simply going deeper and deeper into the gospel. It's about hearing, it's hearing Jesus, about hearing him over and over again. It's learning more about him. And that's what produces fruit in our lives. That's what feeds our faith. It's what enables us to love others. Do you see it in the text? It's right there. Growth in sanctification, growth in Christ-likeness, growth in holiness comes from hearing the gospel, hearing good news. Fruit comes from hearing the gospel. Spiritual maturity is developed as you go deeper and deeper into the good news. It looks like this, according to these opening verses in Colossians. You focus on, you hear, you receive gospel hope. That leads to faith, that leads to love. Paul gives the reason in verse 5 why they have faith and love. Because of the hope laid up in heaven for you. So hope stimulates faith and stimulates love. But what is hope? Well, biblical hope is certainty. It's not wishful thinking like, I wish the Cowboys would make it to the Super Bowl. That's wishful thinking. That's a pipe dream. Biblical hope is certainty. It's not wishful thinking like, I just hope this happens. It's, it's something that's solid. It's secure. There's no uncertainty at all. The timing of the hope is uncertain, but the reality of it is sure. Alec Motier said, in earthly terms, hope is certainty of time, uncertainty of event. Like, I hope it will be fine tomorrow. In the Bible, hope is uncertainty of time, certainty of event. Biblical hope says, I don't know when it will happen, but I do know that it will. 
And ultimately, our hope, the hope laid up in heaven that Paul is describing here, is Jesus himself, as Paul says in 1 Timothy 1.1. Paul, an apostle of Christ Jesus, by command of God, our Savior, and of Christ Jesus, our hope. And so our hope is Jesus. The hope, the certainty of resurrected bodies that don't break in the night while you're sleeping. The hope of the new heavens and new earth. The hope of never sinning again. Oh my goodness, what's that going to be like? All of these are wrapped up in Jesus. He is our hope. So how do you spell hope? You spell hope, J-E-S-U-S. Jesus is the hope laid up for us in heaven that Paul's talking about here. Ralph Davis said, No mild God or soft Jesus can give his people hope. It is only as we know the warrior of Israel who fights for us that we have hope of triumphing in the muck of life. Listen, no soft, wimpy Jesus is going to give you hope in the midst of the cultural climate that we live in. The animosity and the hatred that is out there for Christians for conservatives. No soft Jesus will give you hope. If your image of Jesus is that he's just been to the salon and got his hair done and he got his nails manicured and his hands are really soft and they smell like strawberry hand lotion, if that's your view of Jesus, that's not going to give you any hope in our cultural climate. That Jesus is a wimp. That Jesus is a pushover. No, you need the warrior Jesus, the warrior of Israel to give you hope in the world that we live in today. This is why Paul starts this letter off with the gospel. He knows what this little church is up against. He knows that a wimpy Jesus will not give them hope. And that's why he reminds them in chapter 1 that Jesus is preeminent over all creation. That's why he will tell them in chapter 2 that Jesus disarmed rulers and principalities through the cross. Paul is using gospel language to build a gospel culture in this church so that they will be strong enough to stand in the face of the cultural climate in which they lived. The opposition, the animosity, the persecution. Listen, a wimpy Jesus will not build a gospel culture or a gospel church that can survive cultural hostility. You need the warrior Jesus in your mind. The one who is preeminent over all creation. So that means that we need to get the gospel, this gospel hope of our warrior, our savior in our bloodstreams in order to build a gospel culture here so that we can stand against the cultural onslaught out there in the world. And when we do this, when we get this gospel hope into our bloodstreams, it actually produces fruit in our lives. It produces good works, good works that our neighbor needs. As Martin Luther said, God doesn't need your good works, but your neighbor does. God is a God of no needs. He doesn't need anything from you. God did not need the worship songs that you were singing this morning. God has no needs whatever, whatsoever. We sing to God, we worship God because that's an appropriate response to his grace. But God didn't wake up today at like 97% God and he's like, I need them to sing so I can be 100% God. And then we sing and he's like, now he's 100% there. God doesn't need our songs. God doesn't need anything. He's a God of no needs. He doesn't need your good works, but you know who does? Your neighbor, your family member, someone here at Grace. 
So when we get this gospel hope in our bloodstreams, it produces fruit in our lives. It produces good works, and our neighbors need them. Look at verse 5 again. Because of the hope laid up for you in heaven, of this you have heard before in the word of truth, the gospel, which has come to you, as indeed in the whole world it is bearing fruit and increasing, as it also does among you. Since the day you heard it and understood the grace of God in truth. So here's what Paul is saying. When we hear the hope of the gospel, we get more trust in Jesus, we get more love for others, and then we see more fruit in our lives. All of this comes from getting hope in your bloodstream. Getting the gospel into every nook and cranny of your heart. Getting the warrior Jesus who fights for his people in your heart. And that's why you can never hear too much good news. You can never hear too much gospel. You can never hear too much about Jesus. It's why when we sing songs to Jesus and about Jesus on Sunday morning, it's why your heart comes alive. Your heart would not come alive if we sang seven ways to be a good neighbor, would it? That would make your heart come alive. Bring them cookies. Mow their lawn. Feed their animals when they're on vacation. That wouldn't fill your heart, would it? What fills your heart is singing about your Savior because you can never hear about your Savior too much. And then fruit, the fruit of the Holy Spirit, is not produced in isolation. It's produced in community. Paul says, y'all heard the gospel when it came to Colossae. It started bearing fruit and increasing from the very first day you heard it. And it was happening in community. It's always produced in community. Now, our temptation is always to read the Bible as individuals, isn't it? We all read Colossians 1, 3 through 8 as an individual, don't we? That's how we read it. We forget that Paul is writing to churches, people, a community. Plural. So if we want to see the Spirit of God produces fruit in our lives through the gospel, we have to be involved in the lives of other believers. This is all that Paul is moving toward in chapter 3. When we get there, all the bear with one another's, the forgive one another's, the teach and admonish one another's, all of that happens in gospel community. It doesn't happen with you and Jesus and your Bible sitting on the beach at Pismo. That's a good thing. Go do it. But you can't love somebody when you're by yourself. You can't admonish someone by yourself. You cannot forgive someone by yourself. So let me encourage you once again, if you're not connected to people here, if you're not involved, get involved here. Grace, don't just come to the service and then leave. The music's good. The preaching, eh. Listen, you can get better preaching on the radio, okay? I'll admit that. Alistair Begg is a better preacher than I am. If you're just coming for good preaching, my goodness, your bar is low. There's better preaching on the radio. Come and hear the word of God. The sermon may be mid, but the fellowship is sweet. So come and join a Sunday school class, a small group, a Bible study if you haven't. Get connected so that the Spirit of God can bear His fruit in your life through His gospel for the good of your neighbor and for His glory. Let me say it again. Get connected here in this church community so that the Spirit of God can bear His fruit, increase His fruit in your life through His gospel 
for the good of your neighbor and for his glory. One way that you can get connected is to sign up for a few emails that we send out every week. There's a little connection uh, sheet in your worship bulletin. If you've not given us your information, please fill this out. But at the bottom, you'll see that we have three emails that you can sign up for. Um, There's a prayer chain. If you'd like to know how to pray for people, those go out at random times. We don't get a lot of these. We're not going to like bombard you. We have a newsletter that comes out once a week. And then we have a daily devotional that we send out Monday through Friday. That's all centered here about what we do on Sunday morning. The devotionals and everything is all centered. We want you, this, it's like take-home theology. It's take-home church. We don't want to just come on Sunday morning, hear something, and go about our life. We want to remind you of what we talked about on Sunday morning. And so we send a devotional out so that you can read every day to be reminded of what you heard here on Sunday morning. And that's one way that you can feel connected to people here at Grace is to sign up for those emails. And when you do that, and when you get involved in classes and different things, you will see the Spirit of God working in your life. You'll be, probably be surprised at how wonderful it is. Well, this is what the Colossians did. Paul tells us that the Colossians, in verse 5, they heard. In verse 6, they heard. So they heard the word of truth and the grace of God in truth, Paul says. So Paul's just speaking about the gospel here. He says gospel. He says word of truth. He says grace of God in truth. That's, that's all the gospel. Last week, we saw what God's grace is, the grace of God in truth. If you weren't here, you can go back and listen to that sermon. We unpacked God's grace, but notice that Paul calls the gospel here the word of truth. God's word is the only truth that you can rely on. You can't rely on your feelings. You can't rely on what you read on Twitter or what somebody else says about some issue, gender, sexuality, marriage, whatever. God's word is the only truth that you can rely on. And the Colossians needed this reminder The word of God, the grace of God in truth, the word of truth. Because they were falling for the lies of some false teachers that had slipped into their small groups and into their community groups and into their Sunday school classes. Well, let me ask you, what lies are you falling for today? What lies of culture have you believed about marriage and sexuality and gender? What have you been reading online and you're like, you know, I know God's word says this, but this... Ask the Holy Spirit to show you. Say, show me where I've been believing the lies of culture. You could pray Psalm 43. Send out your light and truth and let them lead me to your holy hill. And then I will go to the altar of God, to God my exceeding joy. One translation is, to God the giver of ecstatic joy. You pray, send out your light Because I'm in darkness. I'm surrounded by darkness. The darkness of my own thoughts. The darkness of what I read on social media. I'm surrounded by darkness. Send out your light and send out your truth. Because I'm surrounded by falsehood. I'm believing lies. Send out your light and truth and let them lead me to you. To God my exceeding joy. There's a lot of talk about revival. Right? In the last week or so. You want revival to come to your life. you, You pray Psalm 43. Send out your light and your truth. And let them lead me to your holy hill. And then I will go to the altar of God. To God my exceeding joy. Okay, well, let's look at verse 7. 
Where did they hear this good news? Paul says in verse 7, Just as you learned it from Epaphras, our beloved fellow servant, he is a faithful minister of Christ on your behalf and has made known to us your love in the Spirit. So Paul says they learned the gospel from Epaphras. They heard it. He says two times they heard it. And then he says they learned it. That's discipleship right there. You hear the gospel and you learn about the gospel. We have lots of opportunities for discipleship here, so I hope you get plugged in to one of them, one of the many here at Grace, because we want to stay busy making disciple, making disciples. We want to disciple you so that you know how to go and disciple others and be involved in that. It's hearing and it's being taught. Besides the Sunday morning sermon, in what ways are you hearing and being taught here at Grace? Don't miss out. Get involved. But Paul also heard that the gospel had borne fruit in Colossae, so they should understand that it's genuine, it's real. Like, they've seen the fruit of the Spirit in their lives. And Paul's saying, what you heard from Epaphras is truth. It's the grace of God and truth. It's the word of truth. Therefore, the false teaching that was spreading through their church should be cut out. They're saying, well, we know what you've heard from Epaphras, but you also have to do these things. And Paul is saying, no, you heard the word of God in truth, the grace of God in truth. And you heard the gospel, and it's been bearing fruit in your life. Can't you see it? This is the real deal. You don't have to do these things. You just keep believing this. What Epaphras taught them is the real deal, the real gospel of the real Jesus, because it produced faith love, and hope in their church. And so Paul's basically saying, don't you see what happened when the gospel came to town? How it changed your life? How there's fruit in your life now that's increasing? And then Paul says it produced love in the spirit. This is not a natural thing that you can just conjure up, love in the spirit. You cannot chalk up love if you're a loving person You can't just chalk it up to your personality or your Enneagram number. It takes the Spirit of God to love people because we're just too selfish, aren't we? Right? It takes the Spirit of God to love your spouse, who you love, right? This person that you've pledged your life to and you struggle to love sometimes, right, married people? Don't elbow your spouse right now. It takes the Spirit of God to help you love someone that you love so much, but you're finding it very difficult to love in the moment. But as you look at Jesus, as you remember the hope that you have, as you preach the gospel to your own heart, the Spirit of God will enable you to love. And if you struggle to love someone, ask the Spirit to help you because He loves helping people love hard to love people. That's the Spirit loves doing that. What you need help loving a hard to love person, I will help you do that. And then as you pray that, this is so sobering. Think about this. You may be a hard to love person to someone else, right? You think about that? We usually just think about the people that are hard to love. We're like, I love this person. Lord, help me. They get on my nerves. Oh, my gosh. There's someone in this church that's probably praying that about you. Have you ever thought about that? There's someone saying, oh, Lord, please help me love them. Gosh, I hope they don't sit next to me in Sunday school class. Please, Lord, please, Lord, please. Okay. Somebody might be praying that about you just as you were praying that about them. And it takes the Spirit of God to help us love one another in the spirit and one of the main ways that you will be empowered to love other people in the spirit is by hearing the gospel and preaching the gospel to your own heart what jesus has done for you when you were so unworthy of his love
So get you some gospel in your ears. Read good books on the gospel. Obviously, read God's word. We want you to do that. Read God's word. And then read good books on the gospel. Here, I'll just give you a few. I mentioned a quote earlier by uh, Jeff Vanderstelt, Gospel Fluency. There's a, group, a book called Hidden in the Gospel, Truths You Forget to Tell Yourself Every Day by William Farley. Jerry Bridges has many. Here's one called The Gospel for Real Life. And then number four, The Gospel, How the Church Portrays the Beauty of Christ by Ray Ortland. There are many books I could recommend to you. You have no idea how hard it was for me to just nail it down to four books. I wanted to just keep typing and typing and typing and typing. So if you've read all these and you need another one, reach out to me. Just pick one of these. Get you some gospel in your ears. Listen to sermons. Listen to gospel-centered songs. Have conversations with other Christians about Jesus. Listen, the gospel is at home in your ears. The gospel does not feel out of place in your ears. It feels very much at home. The gospel loves to camp out in your ears. It feels at home there. It was made for your ears, and your ears were made for the gospel, a match made in heaven. Paul says, you heard, you heard, Colossians, the gospel. And yes, the gospel loves to live in your ears. You're called to hear it, but the gospel is not a homebody. The gospel loves to chill in your ears. It loves to ring in your ears, but it gets antsy and it wants to leave too. The gospel is not a homebody. The gospel wants to leave your ears, move into your heart to transform you, to change you, to cause fruit to increase in your life. But then the gospel likes to spend time on your lips. The good news of Jesus wants to leave your lips and go into other ears. The gospel wants to go into your ears, into your heart, and then it wants to leave your lips. So go share the good news of Jesus with somebody this week. Let me ask you, who are you praying for to receive Christ? What unbeliever do you know that needs to hear the gospel? The gospel is there on your lips waiting. and It's like, I want to go into that ear. I want to go into that ear and that ear. Tell the Central Coast that Jesus lived for them, died for them, rose again, ascended to heaven, and soon will return to judge the living and the dead. Remember, you can never hear too much good news, too much gospel, too much Jesus. You never want to be able to say, you know what, I've heard too much about Jesus. I'm, I'm good. It's okay. Well, I'm a little full. No more Jesus. According to Colossians chapter 1, the more you hear the gospel, the more faith you'll have, the more trust you'll have, the more love you'll have, the more hope you'll have, and the more fruit that you will see in your life. Because you can never hear too much good news. The gospel can never be over-preached. As we grow in the grace of God, we hear the old, old story of the gospel, but we start hearing it in brand new ways. And it continues doing its rescuing and transforming work in our lives. Remember, language creates culture. So let's just soak up the gospel and let's share this good news with one another and with others. Just take it all in. Final quote from Jeff Vanderstelt, one of the books I recommended to you. He said, most believers have become gospel snippet people who speak gospel catchphrases. They're speaking gospelish but not the actual gospel in a way people can hear and believe. So let's not be gospel snippet people. 
Let's not just speak little gospel catchphrases or merely speak gospel. Let's speak pure 100% good news to one another. And then when the Holy Spirit does what he does, let's be quick to give him all the glory. Okay, we'll end with some homework this week. How about that? I think what Paul is saying uh, in this letter can be captured in these three things. And if you do these things, you'll see the gospel bear fruit and increase in your life. Number one, fix your gaze on Jesus. Number two, preach the gospel to yourself and to others. And number three, walk closely with some grace friends. Find some people that you can walk with together in community that you can open up and share your struggles and your problems and be encouraged and be prayed for. Let's pray. Jesus, thank you for all that you are for us. Thank you that you're not a wimp. Thank you that you're not a pushover. Thank you that you are preeminent over all creation, over all governments, over all cultures. Help us to remember that, that you are a warrior and you fight on behalf of your people. Let this hope get into our bloodstreams, Jesus, so that we have more faith, more love, and we see more of your fruit in our lives. Help us to reach the central coast with the good news about you, Lord. Give us opportunities this week. Give each one of us an opportunity to tell someone about Jesus Save people, Lord. Save people. May we take this place back for the kingdom of God, for your glory, Lord, and for your church. In Jesus' name, amen.